the value proposition is the answer to a fundamental question that every single donor has to hear the answer to. If I am the ideal donor to your organization, why should I give to you rather than someone else or not at all? The value proposition is not something you can declare. It's something you have to discover. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to The Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I am your host, Robin Colucci, and you never thought about the possibility that the reason people donate to a nonprofit organization might have anything in common with the reason they would decide to read your book. And I mean, maybe you did think about it, but I certainly never had until I got to have my conversation with Tim Kachuriak. Now, Tim is the founder and chief innovation and optimization officer for Next After which is a fundraising research lab consultancy and training institute that works with charities, nonprofits, and NGOs to help them grow their resource capacity. He was the lead researcher and co-author of the online fundraising scorecard, Why Should I Give to You? The Nonprofit Value Proposition Index Study. And boy, wait till you hear some of the stuff that Tim has to share about what they discovered in that study. And that will be coming up when you listen to the interview, as well as the mid-level donor crisis was another study that he participated in. Tim has trained organizations in fundraising optimization around the world and is a frequent speaker at international nonprofit conferences. And this interview is so full of insight and insider understanding of what makes people donate that I think, and we've also identified a lot of ways, the reasons people donate translate to why they buy your book or why they want to work with you once they have your book. So this is a really must listen for anyone who is marketing or growing any concern, any organization, whether it's a consulting business, or a nonprofit, and especially for our listeners who have nonprofit foundations themselves or are participating in nonprofit work. So sit back, enjoy, and get ready to take some notes. Tim, welcome to the Author's Corner. Robin, thanks for having me. Well, I'm so delighted to have you. As I was mentioning to you when we spoke before the show, I have had many clients who are writing a book and they are either writing a book specifically to help bring in money for their nonprofit, or they're writing a book, and they also have strong nonprofit connections or interests. Mm-hmm. Or, and I'm sure those are two little different relationships. And I know you have some really cool stuff to tell us about how writing a book might play into fundraising for your nonprofit and entities. But before we go there, I'd love it if you would tell us how did you even get into this work with nonprofits? What led you to this path that you're on? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think that most people that find themselves working in the nonprofit space have taken a very indirect path. And that's certainly the case for me as well. So I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, born and raised, went to college there. Uh, graduated. Okay, stop, stop. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> I lived in Pittsburgh for, from age three to 15. So I have to know what part of Pittsburgh? South Hills. So South Hills. Okay. Yep. Washington yeah. County, we're just over the Washington County border and Peters Township. So past St. Okay. Clair and Mount Lebanon. Yeah. All right. I was Highland Park, not okay. far from yeah. near the zoo. I used yes. to. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I love that. Okay. Spot. All right. Now we can continue. I'm okay. sorry. So <laughs> I graduated, I went to Robert Morris College and I graduated right after 9-11, which is a horrible, mm. horrible time to enter into the job force, yeah. especially for somebody like me who desperately wanted to work in the field of advertising and marketing. But fortunately, I worked at a country club all during high school and college. So I like the joke. I had 432 aunts and uncles that were captains of industry. Oh, and so... I called up Uncle Joe and Joe <laughs> Blattner was the president of Blattner Bruner Advertising. I think it's Bruner now. And I went met with him at the USX Tower downtown where their office was. I did this little dog and pony show. And he's like, man, I'd love to hire you, kid. But, you know, we just laid off 30 people yesterday. 9-11 hit our industry hard, our agency harder. Yeah. I can't help you. So... I kind of was wandering the wilderness for six months, just trying to find somebody to give me a shot. I met a serial entrepreneur at a golf outing, ironically. And he said, look, I've got all these little businesses I operate. Maybe you could do some marketing stuff for them. I said, that sounds great. And then he said, you know what? Why don't you start a business yourself? I said, well, I don't know how to do that. And he's like, well, I do. He's like, we've got an incubator on the second floor of our office building. I'll give you a desk. I'll be your partner. I'll introduce you to people and the rest is up to you, kids. So I'm like, I'm living in my parents' basement. I've got nothing to lose. So I'm like, sure, why not? Wow. What an offer. What a generous offer. It, it was great, Robin. I mean, I really just learned a lot about business and about hustle and about how to get clients and keep them happy and make payroll. I eventually had a staff and I had rent and I had all these things that a business owner has to deal with. And I had no preconceptions about a lot of that stuff. So it was a lot of like on the job training. And I loved it. I did that for about five years. Loved what I was doing. Wasn't really excited about the clients we were working with. Not that they were bad, but we had lots of automotive dealerships and law firms and nothing wrong with car dealers and lawyers, but just didn't really spin my wheels. Sure. So about five years into having that business, my church was doing a building campaign. They were raising money to go build a new building. And I said, well, maybe I could volunteer to help do the marketing materials for the campaign. They said, that'd be great. And it was the first time that I was doing something that I felt like I was wired to do marketing, right? But for mm -hmm. a cause I cared about. Mm -hmm. And so after that, I can't go back and make car dealership websites anymore. So ended up <laughs> in a very short amount of time, went and took a job at a nonprofit organization, sold my house, sold my business, left Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and took a job at a nonprofit in South Florida. The day I got there, the founder of the organization had a heart attack. I should point out the correlation is not causation, at least I hope not in this case. But like, uh, <laughs> so we went from like a $36 million a year nonprofit organization to 18 in less than 12 months. Oh, so man. It was right. crazy, 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 crazy. So that was kind of my first violent shove into fundraising. I was hired to do digital communications. They said, look, whatever you're doing on the internet, figure out how that raises money. And so I kind of wasn't really excited about that very much. I thought that fundraising was kind of like the, oh, I don't know, the necessary evil, the dark side of nonprofit work. But what I came to discover is that it's actually a really cool thing, right? I mean, because like when you inspire people to give to meet the wants, needs, interests, and desires of others, then like they're not kind of like just so trapped in their own consumerism, right? And they mm -hmm. kind of like have to say, well, I could spend everything I have on myself or I could use a portion of it to help others. And it's pretty cool.
So anyway, so then I went to work for an agency here in Dallas, Texas in 2008. I was there for about two years. We got acquired by another agency. And these are agencies that work exclusively with nonprofits and help them raise money. And I just fell in love with that. And I became obsessed with like the digital side of that and how you optimize the digital side of that and then started my own company in 2012. So been wow, doing that that's, what an incredible journey. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm really curious about the digital side of yes. profit fundraising, because I'm accustomed to getting the phone call or mm -hmm. the postcard or the letter. And tell us more about how digital fundraising, like, what is the mechanism of this? Like, how does this work? Yeah, it's fascinating. So what's interesting about fundraising is that nonprofits, they have to discover their value proposition. Mm -hmm. So value proposition, when I ask nonprofit leaders, like, what's your value proposition? They'll go and they'll wax and they'll wane elegantly about their mission and their values and like the work that they do. And I said, that's great, but that's not a value proposition. The value proposition is the answer to a fundamental question that every single donor has to hear the answer to. If I am the ideal donor to your organization, why should I give to you rather than someone else or not at all? And so what I say is like a value proposition is not something you can declare. It's something you have to discover because it lives inside the hearts and the minds of the people that give you your money. So how does that relate to digital fundraising? Well, digital, if you think about the internet, it's the world's greatest behavioral laboratory that's ever existed. I can go and run experiments in real time with real people, and I can get data back that answers my questions about value propositions. So that was the path that I started to take with digital. And we do everything from like doing email campaigns to doing Facebook and social media ads and things like with social media and, and other types of channels, search engine marketing. But it really relates to just trying to figure out what works and what doesn't through testing and experimentation. So can you say that statement again about what you have to figure out as far as the donor? Because I think this really ties to books. I'd like to hear well, you say it again. It absolutely sure. does. So the question is that, let me put it in a more kind of a consumer contextualization. Uh -huh. If I am your ideal customer, why should I buy from you rather than one of your competitors or not yeah. at all? That's the question that we ultimately have yeah, to answer. Absolutely. And here's where it ties into authors and books, right? I can go and try to yell from the megaphone what my value proposition is. But if I can actually envelope you in my value proposition, if I can pull you into the story and let you kind of like discover my value proposition, it's so much more impactful. And so that's how we really leverage a lot of our clients' books or encourage them to write books. Or if they don't have books, we'll say, give me one of your speeches. We'll create an ebook, right? A shorter form kind of piece of content. And we'll use that as a free resource, a way to kind of get people to sign up, to raise their hand, say, hey, I'm interested. And then as they read that book, their mind becomes acclimated to the value proposition. And now we have a prospective donor. That's so interesting. So is it like a story of the founder or like a story of someone that they helped in the organization. It or could be, or it could be a story of somebody whose life has been impacted by the social impact delivered through the organization. Or it could be like, uh, probably one of the most compelling stories is from a guy named Scott Harrison. He's the CEO for Charity Water. I was nodding my head because I have to say, not only do I know who he is, but he was interviewed by one of my clients, Nicole Stott, Okay. For her book, Back to Earth. Yeah. So just, I have to do a little plug there for that. But Absolutely. yeah, and his organization's amazing and his story is amazing. But and yes, his story like is like the longstanding control for how they actually go and acquire new donors. They basically have Scott tell his story. 
I you can bet. go watch the 20 minute version on YouTube <laughs> and that's where they get a lot of their donors from. So it's the story is always very, very compelling. Yeah. I mean, and his story is particularly compelling because he started off being that guy. That's right. right. That's right. The guy who was all about partying and spending mm -hmm. money on himself and wasn't really thinking about how he could help others. And then he completely transformed his whole life and exactly an amazing organization. So yeah. And I have to admit, I'm a monthly donor to charity. Water. There you go. All right. <laughs> so I am now proving your point because I remember the story and it moved me to the point where I didn't just donate once. I put That's in right. a recurring monthly donation. And the reason why, Robin, is because of a fundamental thing that we've learned through our experimentation and testing journey. It's that people give to people. They don't mm -hmm. give to email machines. They don't give to websites. They don't give to direct mail campaigns. People give to people. And the more that you can humanize your organization, the more that you can basically just build relationships with people, then the more effective you'll be at fundraising. Yeah. And they don't give to calendars and they don't give to... <laughs> That's, right. That's right. That's a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> so that's a really powerful thing. So telling the story. That's right. Yeah. I mean, St. Jude Hospital, right? They've used that very effectively. Yeah. And um, even just using the value proposition example from Charity Water, right? So it's like when you give monthly, you're going to enable us to go and create these wells. And we're going to go report back and show you the people that are used to drink out of these cisterns with like all this kind of really bad stuff. And honestly, that's kind of like where his journey began is like he realized that it was the water that people were drinking that was causing these flesh eating bacteria that was really harming a lot of folks in the community. So yes. it's kind of like making the story full circle. That's incredible. Yeah, it's really great. So what do you do to extract these stories from your clients? Well, we do a lot of interviews. We'll uh -huh. try to get access to the founder or the CEO or the executive director of the organization. We'll get them on the call. And what I love is like how easy it is to just ask just very simple questions. And these folks are so passionate about what they do. So we'll typically record the calls. We'll send it to rev.com, have it transcribed, yeah. and then we'll go and we'll do some like editing. We'll send it back to them and then they'll add more content to it. And all of a sudden we've got like pretty compelling resource that we can offer to folks. So yeah, it really just kind of starts with trying to get the capture the heart of the leader of the organization. They seem like they really have clear vision for how their organization creates social impact. That's awesome. And so are there any other kinds of stories that you like to use or is it really just that core leader the stories of impact are incredibly powerful. So like most nonprofit organizations, they send out monthly or, or sometimes even more often than monthly fundraising appeals. And that could come in the form of a direct mail letter or an email or something we'll post on Facebook or social media. And usually those stories are stories of somebody that's been impacted through the organization. And those stories are incredibly compelling as well, right? Because instead of saying, well, we're helping hundreds of thousands of people get access to clean water, it's this one person, right? It's Dora. And it's her being able to go and like not have to walk six miles to be able to go and just you know, have access to clean water. But now she has it right there in her local community through this well that you've helped to be able to create. So it's just kind of like, you know, making the charity more real by telling those stories of impact. Yeah. And that is really also an effective technique in writing a book, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can say, oh, my information's helped millions of people. Okay. But get off that quickly. <laughs> Right. And tell us about the one, one or two. One. <laughs> tell us yeah. about one at a time, yeah. right? Depending on the context, who you've really made a, a difference with, because that's how people, I mean, I've always perceived, and I'd love to have you weigh on it, but I think that when people 
hear other people's stories, they kind of automatically mentally put themselves in that person's shoes. I mean, they go straight to a real empathetic kind of point of view. That's right. Begin to imagine like themselves in that situation. That's absolutely correct. And something really interesting that we've learned. So we do a lot of experimentation, A-B testing. And I think we've documented over 4,500 online fundraising experiments. And one of the things we found is incredibly interesting is how powerful the written word is. So let me give you a couple of examples. Okay. Yes. So first of all, if you go to most nonprofit organizations website and you click on the donate button and you get to that page, oftentimes you don't see a lot of copy. There's not a lot of text. It's simply like a command, donate now and fill out this form, right? You know, <laughs> hit the submit button and bow down before the lords of nonprofit marketing. <laughs> and one of the things that we found is that the biggest thing that's missing from those pages that unlocks greater conversion is copy is words, is text. And so we've run dozens and dozens of experiments of like actually taking that, what I would call like the naked donation page that doesn't have copy and we'll add a few paragraphs of text explaining the value proposition, two, three, four, 500% increase in donation conversion when we do that. That's interesting because I've heard a lot of conventional wisdom about websites and not being too text heavy. Yeah, that's 100% untrue. Because like, if you don't use words to explain your value proposition, then you're allowing the prospect, the customer or the donor to come to their own conclusions. And once they get to that page where they have to fill out the form, that's where all the friction of the process exists. I've got to go get out my credit card or whatever. I've got to fill out all this information. I've got to answer these questions that I maybe don't know the answer to. And even with a nonprofit, we have the decision of how much to give. Our customers decide with the uh, prices, right? right? And what we have found yeah. is that when we <laughs> lay out a valid, lucid, compelling value proposition, not only do more people say yes, but they say heck yes, and they give larger gift amounts as well. Wow. Yeah. And I love what you said about that's the highest friction point. That's right. Because that is absolutely true. Absolutely. And well, let me give you one other quick example too, because there's something you said about like how when people are reading, like they're kind of forming these pictures in their head and like they're becoming empathetic to the cause, right? We've tested many, many times having a video on a donation page versus having text. And what we find over and over and over again is that text outperforms the video on the donation page. And I think it's for the reason that you said that when you read, you create your own pictures in your head. It becomes more real to you. It's more personal than when you actually have a video where it's subject to the author, the producer, the director's interpretation, right? Which actually is slightly less empathetic, right? Yeah. Maybe artistic, maybe more engaging, but it's not as personal to me, right? Yeah. And actually, oh, this is such an interesting point. I want to explore this further because I'm also thinking like the, first of all, reading is an act. Mm. It's active. Watching is passive. That's right. So you're looking at it versus being in it, really. I mean, the reading makes you a participant Mm -hmm. in it and you have to participate and you have to focus Correct. So you can't be peeling the carrots while you're reading the text. That's right. But you're going to have some slices in your fingers. (laughs) 
no, you're absolutely right. I think that's very true. You have I mean, 100% of their attention. Yes. And I also think it, well, I remember we ran an experiment. This is the head of a large university. And we ran an AB split test where version A was a video of the president of the organization laying out the value proposition. Then we took an exact text transcript of what he said and replaced the text. And we did that AB split test and the text produced a 562% increase in conversion to donation. And so we went and took the results to the president. He's like, well, we have some different theories as to why this works. He's like, well, I totally get it. He's like, because my reading bit rate is much faster than the video playback bit rate. What he means is like, I can actually go and extract value from a body of text much faster than having to sit there and watch this two minute video. Right. So which is really interesting too, because it's like, turning on its head this whole idea of we have a shorter attention span because we're being shown so much video. That's right. But it really requires more extended attention to get the video than it does to read the text. Right. People say readers are leaders, but I also think readers are buyers, right? So like when people (laughs) actually like connect with text, they are finding, I mean, like, We'll create these long form donation landing pages where it's like, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10 paragraphs. And people are like, who's going to read that? I was like, the customer will, the ideal donor will. Those are the people that are going to go read this stuff, right? There was like an old ad guy, Howard Gossage. He said, people don't read advertising. They read what's interesting to them. Sometimes that's advertising, right? Right. And so like what I say, to put a modern contextual spin on it's like people don't read donation pages. They read what's interesting to them. And sometimes, sometimes that's your nonprofit's donation page. Yeah. That's incredible. So I've got to ask you, have you ever done this in reverse? Like, have you ever had a client come to you who already has a donation page? You know, they're already raising money and then they go to write a book afterwards. And I'm curious when they do that, do you ever have any advice for them on how they might approach writing that book in a way that would especially support the nonprofit. Yeah, I'm always interested in just like the process, right? Like how do you hack the process and go faster? And so one of the things we've coached a couple of our clients to do is to create a series of webinars on a topic that's related to their organization. We'll record the webinars, we'll transcribe them, and then we'll kind of like say, look, you've got like basically... 60 to 75% of a book here, right? So do you want to finish it? And it's almost kind of like now they've got that sunk cost mentality where it's like, (laughs) now I'm definitely going to finish it. So that's been a couple of things that we've experimented with just to try to hack the process. I was going to say, that sounds like you're hacking the CEO and and getting them to commit the time. Exactly right. Well, look, it's two thirds done. I mean, you might as well. You might as well finish it. Yeah, exactly. So when you're, I know one of the great things about books is example stories, right? I mean, that's that's a great way to teach any point that you're trying to make in the book. Have you ever had an example story that's in the book, make it to the website or back or vice versa? Or are they really? Actually, so one of the things that we've experimented with, and it's been incredibly powerful, is we've taken a couple people's books and we've turned them into online courses, right? So it's like taking each chapter of the book becomes a separate lesson. And then we make it available as a free online course for people to take. And we get like hundreds of thousands of subscribers. And many of those people then become donors. And the reason why is because there's such a high perceived value of this online education that they're receiving. Like, And so when we present that as an offer, there's kind of like this reciprocity that kicks in. And so they turn out to be really strong donors to the organization. So what kind of a book, what kind of a course 
Give me an example of a kind of a course that you would create off of a book that would then lead to donating to a, an organization. Like, is the book about the organization? Is the book about something else? No. So we had this one organization. They are an educational institution, so it does kind of make sense. And so the book was about, I think it was like this guide to the constitution or something like that, right? And so we had them take that guide to the constitution and break it up into a series of lectures that then became available as free online course content. And it became very, very compelling. And so then people would get that for free and then donate to the institution. Exactly right. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. There you go. I love (laughs) this. This is really, really cool. What are some other creative ways that you have mastered in your digital fundraising universe here? (laughs) Well, we've really kind of like began to deconstruct the four elements of an effective value proposition through testing. And so they break down into these four different kind of facets, I guess, of an effective value proposition. Number one is appeal. It's got to be something that people like that they want. It's got to be a change they want to see made in society. You know what I mean? Like, so that's the first element is appeal. The second element is exclusivity, meaning it must be something that relates in some way to the organization actually does, right? It has to be like, if I say, okay, they have to have an only factor. If is probably a good way to say it. So like, for example, if I say our nonprofit organization solves hunger, that's very compelling. It's very appealing. But if there's hundreds of thousands of organizations that are doing the same thing, it dilutes the potency of the appeal with the number of competing options. So kind of like the exclusivity acts as like a denominator, if that makes sense for the appeal. The second two dimensions then are credibility and clarity. Credibility means I believe it. I trust that you're the right organization that's going to go do it. I believe that you're going to use steward and shepherd my donation well and actually like make sure that it actually delivers impact. And then clarity is the hardest one for most organizations. Like, do I really truly understand the value proposition? That's where we do a lot of testing around because oftentimes things make a lot more sense inside the organization. And then when you put them out in the wild, it kind of like (laughs) flies over people's head. So we try to really try to test to try to get access to the clarity aspect of value proposition. Yeah. So I'm curious when you're looking for that unique aspect, right? Yeah. Do you look at other, for example, hunger organizations to help you pinpoint what specifically about this organization is in fact unique? We'll do. Yeah. We'll do a competitor analysis and try to like understand that. But most importantly, we said, look, you don't have to like do something that's unique. Like you can do something that a lot of other organizations do, but you have to have your own unique spin on how you do it. Right. So like, for example, it's like, this is an organization that solves homelessness. And one of the ways it does it is through like this mentorship program that actually like helps people kind of get like a hand up, not a handout type of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like trying to figure out what's your unique spin or angle that makes your organization stand out as being you know, different. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Also similar to books, right? We have to look at other books yes. in the space and figure out what makes this particular book unique and what is it saying that one else has that needs to be said. So I love these parallels. This is super fun. <laughs> All right. Now, I had another question, but you're going to have to remind me of what the other ones were because it was on a different one. Exclusivity, credibility, and clarity. Clarity. The first one was the... Appeal. Appeal. Yes, appeal. Okay. Talk to me more about appeal. Help me understand appeal. Well, what a lot of people don't realize is that there's 1.8 million nonprofit organizations that exist in the US. And those are just like the 501c3 organizations that are required to fill out the Form 990 for the IRS. So there's lots of these different organizations that exist. And the problem 
with many of the smaller ones is that it's something that's like a passion project for the founder of the organization. And yet it doesn't have a very big market of potential donors because it's so unique and exclusive and so niche. And so that's one of the things that we really try to work with our clients on is just like, I mean, honestly, like we probably won't take on a client that doesn't have a cause that has a very, very wide appeal to it just because it's not going to scale. And that's really what our job is, is to help them scale. Yeah. And where is a nonprofit in their development when they typically, when they come to you? So given the nature of the work that we do, because it is mass marketing, so we're trying to help organizations get hundreds of thousands of donors, not just a few very large donors. We typically are working with organizations that are they're on the larger mm-hmm. side. Yeah, so I would, I would say we work with the upper three and a half percent of the market. And those are nonprofit organizations that have annual revenue budgets of $10 million and up. So mm-hmm. that's the upper three and a half percent is $10 million and up organizations. The challenge is, is like, there's only maybe 20,000 of those out of the 1.8 million. And yet our heart is to help every single nonprofit. And so one of the things that we developed about seven years ago is the Next After Institute. And so we take everything we learn from research, from testing and experimentation, we distill it down into different free resources, templates, guides, eBooks. We do webinars twice a month. For those who want to go deeper, we've developed nine different certification courses. And so we make those resources available so that everybody can kind of like, you know, it's the rising tide that lifts all boats sort of thing. But honestly, Robin, like from a very pragmatic business standpoint, that serves as really just the foundation of our marketing. And most of the people that become our clients start off by becoming students of the Institute. Yeah. What a great way to practice what you preach. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, we're working in the generosity space. If we're not generous ourselves, then we're <laughs> fooling ourselves, right? <laughs> and that would be, where would people find that? Because like I said, we have mm-hmm. listeners and authors in this world who are either part of nonprofits or committed to them in some way. Nextafter.com is really where you can find all of our resources. We even open source our entire research catalog. So all the 14 or 4,500 experiments, you can go find those there as well. I'm looking at it now. These look incredible. Well, Tim, (laughs) this has just been so inspiring and informative. And I have enjoyed speaking with you so much today. And I am now going to throw at you my signature final question. Oh boy. Here we go. Which is, what did I not ask you that you would love to answer? Ooh, I guess what kind of inspires me, right? To do the work that I do. And I guess that the the answer to that question is that I've just like become really just obsessed with trying to understand why do people give, right? It's kind of like strange behavior, right? It's a very irrational behavior. Like if aliens landed from Mars today and we had to explain to them philanthropy, they're like, so we give things of value to these organizations and like they get, the customer gets nothing in return, nothing tangible, but we do get something in return, right? Like, and the things that we get are very intangible, but they also kind of are very, very valuable to us, right? People give for a variety of different reasons. Some people give out of a sense of duty, responsibility. Some people give because they want the sense of belonging to something bigger. Some people give as an extension of their identity, right? Other people give because they're angry. There's an injustice in this world and we want to see that wrong righted, right? And so I just think it's so fascinating how personal the idea of giving is and the variety of different ways in which people make that decision to give. And so I think it's kind of a cool question because I can spend the rest of my life trying to answer it and I probably will only scratch the surface. So it's pretty exciting. 
Beautiful. Well, once again, fantastic having you here. And I will keep an eye out. I'm not going to look at a donor website the same ever again. And even any website, I actually want to go to my website and see if we have enough text. So thank you for that. And thank you for being with us on The Author's Corner. Absolutely. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.